The Anchored City podcast is recorded in Anchorage, Alaska, on the traditional lands of the Denina Athabascan people. City Podcast. I'm your host, Joel Kiekenfeld. Over the past few decades, a culture war has raged in the United States around same-sex marriage, LGBTQ plus rights, and the acceptance of queer people in mainstream culture. In Anchorage, this culture war has raged on both sides of the political and religious spectrum for nearly 50 years. One group that's been deeply affected by this culture war are LGBTQ plus youth. An article in the Syracuse Journal of Law and Civic Engagement states that approximately 7% of America's youth identify as LGBTQ. However, an estimated 40% of homeless youth identify as LGBTQ. It might not be a hydra of homelessness that's obvious, but one result of this culture war is that LGBTQ plus youth experience homelessness at higher rates than other youth. Today we're discussing LGBTQ plus youth homelessness in Anchorage with Laura Rains. Here's our conversation. That I have yet to cross And I have dreamed of faraway places Where imagination just gets lost And I would search the wide world over So my name is Laura Rains. I'm the co-director of operations for Choosing Our Roots. Um, my passions involve uh, being outdoors, studying theology of varying types, um, finding ways to connect with people who are incredibly different than I am, um, and to have earnest, heartfelt conversations around those differences. Um, and I, uh, yeah, I am uh, a person who also identifies as queer. So the community that I work with is uh, deeply personal to me, um, just from my own lived experience and that of some of my colleagues. Excellent. So it might be helpful for listeners to know what your history has been working with in the area of homelessness and Anchorage. So could you let us know kind of how that's how, how you've interacted with that um, area? Right. Um, so when I first moved to Anchorage, I was working with a congregation named St. Mary's Episcopal Church and realized then uh, in the like I was doing a five month temporary position with them at that time uh, and realized that what I was seeing 
in the issues of homelessness in Anchorage were different than I had seen in other places that I had lived. Um, and there was a, a part of me that was very fascinated with trying to like put a finger on what those differences are. Um, and some of it is the difference in like chronic homelessness or um, just a what felt like a lack of enough support for those facing homelessness here. And so I um, already having a passion for working those working with those experiencing homelessness. I looked in to working with Covenant House and got a job there, worked there for a year and a half um, with um, some really great folks. My particular focus um, was with youth who needed a little extra support and a little extra um, guidance and getting some of the things that they uh, were trying to check off their to-do list done. That involved a lot of building relationship and walking people to social security offices or um, to meetings or appointments um, and just being somebody who like cheered them on in really intimidating situations uh, to help them find a way out of the situation they were in. And that was sort of my intro. I'm back into it now, working with Choosing Our Roots, which I have been with since May. Right on. So listeners might not know what Choosing Our Roots is. Could you explain what Choosing Our Roots is? And then how do LGBTQ plus youth experience homelessness? Absolutely. Um, Choosing Our Roots is a grassroots nonprofit in Anchorage that has started in Anchorage and expanded rapidly to Matsu, Kenai Peninsula, and Bethel as well. Um, it is an organization that works with youth, queer youth ages 13 to 24, who are experiencing homelessness for whatever reason and helps them to find housing. Our The model that we started with and are still growing with is host homes. So we train folks on how to be host, how to welcome uh, LGBTQ youth into their home, um, and then how to give them the supports they need to find independence on their own um, and be able to get out into the world in a safer and more affirming way. And it also helps build community in the meantime, right? Like you now have additional family and volunteers who are invested in uh, seeing you succeed. I think that's so important. We were talking um, in a previous episode about this idea that relationship itself is therapeutic. Um, so again, I hear that with kind of the model that you're using as well. This is a real relational model and helping to build relational support around, around youth. I know that nationally, um, National Network of Youth has talked about LGBTQ plus youth experience homelessness at a rate of like 120% higher risk than other youth. Um, is that true in Anchorage and sort of how would I, I know it's always a hard question when we start talking about like whole cities or whole states or all that kind of stuff, but <laughs> what percentage sort of, of youth that are on the street in Anchorage or experiencing homelessness, would you say would identify as queer? So um, there's a couple of parts to this question that are really fascinating. One being that we don't have data uh, for the state of Alaska on uh, LGBT youth facing homelessness. Um, it was, the question of somebody's um, 
gender or sexuality was only added to the HMIS database. The HMI da database helps us to track folks who are experiencing homelessness and help set them up when uh, housing opens up. Um, so it's a system that all of the social work folks in Anchorage use um, and it's phenomenal, but like we didn't start tracking gender and sexuality until here recently. Um, and then the there's also an annual point in time count that happens. Um, basically all of these volunteers uh, gather and go out and they do a collection of data on folks who are living on the street, in the woods, wherever they can find a place to be. Um, and they get they gather information there to get um, the most up-to-date numbers for that year. Um, but the question of gender and sexuality also wasn't added to that until a couple of years ago. So we're still, uh, according to one of my colleagues who just finished a paper on this, we're still three years out from getting the data on this. Um, we at Choosing Our Roots feel like the stats are probably a bit higher here than they are elsewhere. However, we just don't have the numbers to work with. Um, what we can tell you is that from what we're seeing, we started um, just in Anchorage, have already expanded to like in three years to these four regions um, and are constantly on a wait list to try to help people because the need is so great for specifically for uh, LGBTQ plus youth who find themselves without a place to live. So is there, um, I don't know exactly how to ask this question. So I'm going to just throw it out there and we'll see, we'll see where it goes. But is there a way that LGBTQ plus youth experience homelessness that's different than maybe others that are in a similar situation? And I don't know if that's a very articulate question. Like I said, I don't really know if it, that's a good way to ask the question, but <laughs> Is there something like particular or nuanced or different about how LGBTQ plus youth experience homelessness? So um, many of the youth that that we're working with um, have been ostracized on a level that is um, that's really hard to make inner peace with. A lot of them have been um, kicked out of their family of origins, um, have had to really develop their own family systems. They, um, <clears throat> many of them have been um, kicked out of faith communities um, and have just felt like derision on a level that um, that is really hard to have faith in humanity with. So, um, you know, like it's one of those things that sort of like if your family doesn't want you, who does? And it's this like really hard question to, to make peace with and to find a way to get through. Um, and additionally, like once they're homeless, there's also these issues that pop up with not being able to get a job for whatever reason. There are folks who don't want to hire you if they suspect that you're trans. There are folks who think that you might not like look good behind the desk at their business if you are a, a queer youth with facial piercings or funky colored hair or whatever. So um, there's a, a lot in our experience, it's harder for youth um, 
who are LGBTQ and facing homelessness to find jobs. I mean, just the like not having transport, not easily having transportation, not safely having a place to like live or do laundry, like these things all compile and build atop of one another. So I, we were talking before the official interview a little bit. My background is also working with youth uh, here in Anchorage. And I know one of the stories that I have heard over the years and that I'm also familiar from the previous city I lived in. So I've lived here for almost 30 years, but um, I know that it was true in Grand Rapids, Michigan, where I came from, that a lot of the youth experiencing homelessness were experiencing the kind of stories that you're talking about. Like they came out at some point and were either kicked out of their house or felt like they couldn't stay or didn't feel welcome for whatever reason. Um, are those sort of the stories that you're hearing? And this is maybe a clarifying question, but are those the type of stories that you're hearing here in Anchorage as well? Predominantly, yes. Um, the um, I was talking to a participant a couple of weeks ago who said that, and they have since graduated programming and we're super happy for for them, for that, um, for that like tremendous um, like step forward in their lives. Um, but they were expressing that like when they came out, they remember distinctly their parents saying that they were really upset that they could, that the child was now, the youth was now too old to send to, um, to a religious camp that would help turn them. And we're hearing a lot of these stories. Um, so it's a, it's a really hard, like, there's a line here between, like, um, the, like, cultural, larger cultural understandings of queerness, and then also some, like, religious cultural understandings of queerness, which are really difficult to, um, to pass through, to, like, navigate. Yeah, what strikes me is often the conversation around queerness and LGBTQ plus rights is divorced, I think, in a sense, from this issue of homelessness. I don't know that it's an issue that folks would go, oh, homelessness is connected to this issue, especially for youth of LGBTQ youth being on the street. Like, I don't think that's something that naturally would come to mind for folks when you talk about homelessness. Um, is there anything you would want us to know about the intersection there? Because that is maybe something that folks wouldn't necessarily, it wouldn't pop to mind um, right away. Is there something that you would want us to know or want listeners to know about that intersection that's that's maybe, um, because it's so hidden, you would want folks to know? Um, so that intersection, um, I was recently in a training with uh, HUD, Housing and Urban Development, and they were doing a multiple part series on, um, on folks experiencing homelessness and services um, and their growing points. Like uh, this is like US wide uh, training. And um, the fourth training, they finally got to youth who are facing homelessness. Um, and in that like 30 minute portion, I don't remember them at all talking about the intersection of uh, LGBTQ plus youth and homelessness. I just remember them talking about the fact that there is significantly less data to work with. Part of that, it's hard to get the data because after you've been ostracized, you don't know who to share that with. You don't know who to give that information to safely. Um, 
at this, at that point, your survival is tied up in having to hide parts of yourself. And that's a terrifying place to be. Um, additionally, youth are smart. They are really like, they can, I am amazed constantly my years, like decades of working with youth now. And I am constantly amazed at the way in which they have the ability to like be chameleons, to like fit in where they need to, as long as they need to, to get what they need. Um, That's not true for everybody. Right. But like I witnessed time and time again, that youth have had to look or act a certain way in order to get through a tough situation before they could ever start digging in to like affirming inwardly who they are and stating outwardly who they are. Um, So I think as somebody who loves data and loves to be able to like have numbers in front of me, it's really hard to be able to say like where all of these intersections are. But it's also, I can say from my experience that when I was working at Covenant House, 60% of my caseload work we were youth like it it was a an exorbitant number that and some of them would not I do not ask people to come out for me you can choose however you want to disclose right but the um and I don't want to out anybody but the um but predominantly I had youth who like months in to working with me felt that it was safe enough to say aloud these things. And so the amount of trust that you need in order to give somebody the information about how you identify or what pronouns you use, it's very hard uh, to get to that level of trust after you have, um, you've been kicked out of home or you've been denied jobs or you've had to, um, to fit in in certain social settings just to get by. This might not apply as much um, to youth, but it occurs to me as you're, you're talking about them needing to be chameleons and kind of be who they need to be to get through the situations that they're in. Um, I wonder how much of that um, is true for services as well, like needing to sort of play play along with the system that's there. Cause often like, especially sheltering services tend to be historically pretty binary. There's male shelters and female shelters. There's maybe, maybe a family shelter in a city, but um, how much of you think that chameleon um, aspect of things plays in, in like accessing services when you're experiencing homelessness? And I realize that may not be true for covenant house. So I'm not trying to say like covenant house do that, but well, this is the like the thing you do, like human needs, you need them to be met. And so I don't necessarily, you know, like um, I see it as a completely, completely human response. Like it's an adaptability that you have to do to survive in a system that actually isn't like we never built these services in order to be cohesive. They're all like separate from one another and you have to learn how the systems in whatever town work in order, cause they're different in every town, right? To be able to access, access them in whatever way that is meaningful or helpful to you. And then on top of that, like we notoriously in social service fields, we build services for the most capable people. Um, And it's really hard if you're somebody who lives with disability, whether it's like physical, cognitive, whatever, to access 
to be able to get in and access services. And so I think there's a significant level of adaptability of like, of being what you need to be in order to get the help you need. Likewise, I think there's like a behavioral aspect of that too, that I see a lot of, um, in which people who like, they have been let down by so many systems, so many systems that don't talk to each other and they're so furious. And so I've learned a lot in the past years to just like sit with someone's rage, to sit with the point in which they say, I cannot bend, I cannot adapt, I cannot fold, I cannot chameleon at this point without snapping and to just be able to like sit with that uncomfortable moment and to help them figure out like getting what they need. As you, as you've talked, it's occurred to me that there's a real beauty to what choosing your roots is doing here. When you have youth that have experienced kind of communal breakdown, whether that's in the family or in their faith community or all these systems that we're talking about that are all disjointed, um, and then providing the space where people are welcoming youth into their home as host families. I find that like just absolutely beautiful of like the action itself is not just providing, at least from my perspective, from the outside, not just providing um, a place to stay, which is super important, but also here's someone that's welcoming you in after all these other places that have these conflictual maybe relationships with who you are or have asked you to be something different in order to access the service. And I, I just find that really beautiful of this beginning to rebuild some of what has been broken there. Is there something you can say about that, about the model that you all use, or maybe, I, maybe that's just a comment that's in my head. No, I think it's a, it is a beautiful dream. And it's one that we're trying, uh, we're trying really hard at, you know, we're not always succeeding because we, what we want to do is to be able to support both the host, because it's going to be hard inviting a new person into your, your home. It's going to be in hard inviting somebody into your rhythms, um, especially if this person needs like rides somewhere or doesn't know how to cook or, you know, like there are skills that they may not have. Um, but most importantly, we want the youth to feel supported. Um, and um, and what we continue to find as we navigate this is that like, we really want to prioritize the youth, um, but we're having to sort of rebalance at this time and say like, how is it that we like, because if we're not supporting the hosts enough, how is it that we're able to actually support the youth as well as we want to. And so um, our staff are having discussions right now about like uh, in our sort of like previous programming iteration, maybe we didn't have enough staff, maybe we didn't have enough resources, maybe we didn't have enough like education or tools in order to best equip host uh, because they are doing this radical thing. They're doing this amazingly welcoming thing that says that like this is my safe space and you belong, to, you belong here as well. You belong to be safe in this space as well. Um, but we're, we're navigating how it is at this time that we build better programming so that we could really support the host as well, because it is, um it is no small ask. And um, the relationships that they build with those youth are profound is just the easiest way to say it right because like by the time we meet most youth they have lost faith in any structure 
uh, or any like systemic situation. Um, and so the vulnerability that we're experiencing and just the like the radical hospitality that comes alongside that to invite somebody into your home is is really great. Yeah, you had mentioned sort of um, theology that you're, you're interested in theology at the beginning, and we don't often talk about that on this podcast. But I have a background in that as well, and it just to me it just it speaks to this welcoming the orphan and the widow and the foreigner and the that we see throughout the Judeo Christian tradition of. What does it mean to welcome somebody that's different than you into into your life and into your space and into your into your world? So I find that really really beautiful. So as we're um, going through this season of the podcast, we've been using this term a hydra of homelessness, this mythical beast that's a snake with all these different heads. Yeah. That and often a hydra has one immortal head, but maybe in some ways all the heads of homelessness feel like they're intractable in one way or another. But um, this is the question I've been asking a lot of our guests is if you had a magic wand and, and Laura could just fix one thing in Anchorage as it relates to homelessness, oh. like no barriers and all the stuff that we normally go through of funding and, you know, capacity and all that stuff. If you had a magic wand, what's the one thing you would do to help alleviate or eliminate homelessness in Anchorage? So I'll give you a two-part answer here. For the longest time, I thought it for me, that it was going to be like, we needed more cohesive services. We needed more communication between programs. Um, but the longer I've been working with those facing homelessness, the more I see that this, the like historic tract of poverty um, or housing insecurity through families' lives um, and the like lack of support for parents, the lack of education, the lack of uh, resources, especially um, for those who are like working multiple jobs or just trying to make it, make it to the end of the month to pay rent. Like I now have come to the point where I really think we need to start, we need to start with children. We need to start with like, how do we support families in order to like be able to help support how families grow, how the like financial changes occur, how do we give people the tools that they need to like advocate for better pay or for budgeting? How is it that we help parents with education um, in such a way that like your child coming out to you doesn't immediately mean that they are anathema, like they are uh, abhorrent in some way? Like how is it that Cause I think for me, like the more I, the more youth and young adults I meet, the more I realize that systems have failed them so far back. We talk a lot about resiliency when it comes to homelessness. Like we talk a lot about how, oh, this person is so strong. They're so resilient. They'll bounce back from this. Um, but I think really important thing that keeps coming to my mind over the years is that like. We need to build systems that actually support families so that we don't have to say when somebody's 21 and living on the street, oh, they're so resilient. We get to say, you know, like there are resources available to help you um, and to like, and that these resources hopefully caught them beforehand, before they got to the point of homelessness. So I think, I think we got to start 
earlier. We got to, we have to start um, coping skills, mental health resources, family resources. Um, and I know I say that in a like a political environment <laughs> that keeps stripping away those resources. Um, and that, that sucks, but those are the things that, um, that really do have the power to change the trajectory for long-term. Well, I think that's one of the reasons we're trying to this season talk about all these different inputs, all these ways that um, homelessness affects all kinds of other things is because it's often they're isolated. Like you said, these, these things get stripped away um, without realizing the downstream effects of stripping away something like mental health care or whatever. It ends up in this, in these other issues in these other ways. And then we just deal with that issue of like, okay, well, where are we going to shelter folks? And we don't think about what's the upstream and downstream of these decisions that we're making. We want to do them all disconnected and not realize that they're all just completely woven together. Right. It's an ecosystem. And we forget that so often that like uh, in, in order for people, yeah, the just as like wolves need deer in an environment, we also, you know, like we also have parts of a system that need to happen in order for it to be healthy 20 years from now. So if folks wanted to get involved with your part of the ecosystem with choosing our roots, how would they go about getting in touch with you all and, and getting involved with what you're doing? Absolutely. That's a great question. So you could visit us at choosingourroots.org. Um, and let me look it up on the page because I have already forgotten what our web page looks like. And you can fill out a form there about things that you're interested in. And our uh, co-director of community engagement can reach out. And additionally, like if you're the type of person for whom going to a website to find information just feels like one extra step, you could email us at volunteer at choosingourroots.org and just start a conversation. Delicia, our co-director of community engagement is incredibly happy to answer those and to try to get you plugged in. And volunteering with us doesn't always look like hosting somebody. If you're into that, that is phenomenal. And we are so excited to have that conversation. But if you're like, maybe I just want to donate kitchenware to somebody who's moving into their first apartment, or maybe I want to offer rides to somebody who needs to get to doctor's appointments. We're stoked to have you along for that as well. Great. I hope folks contact you and get involved in whatever way they're able to. So the last question I'm going to ask you is one that we ask a lot of our guests, and that is in the middle of the work that you're doing, is there a spiritual or mindfulness or self-care practice that you do that helps keep you centered in the work that you're doing? I love that question. Um, so I, um, my theology background um, means that I have a, a some rituals that I follow that are just part of like the rhythms of keeping me grounded and sane. Um, one of those is that every Saturday morning, I'm going to make myself biscuits and bacon and eggs. And I'm going to like enjoy Saturday mornings slowly. I have turned myself off. I had a conversation with somebody recently who was like, I don't know if that's self-care that's just eating breakfast. And I was like, no, like there's inherently something about feeding yourself the things that you find to be delicious. That is, you can't argue whether or not it's self-care. It is inherently caring for your body. 
Um, but so like I have my Saturday breakfast ritual that reminds me that I am off. I am slowing down. It is time for me to like be able to focus on something that is not work related, that is not, um, as heavy. Um, I also have a practice of writing lamentations. Um, it doesn't sound uplifting and sometimes it isn't, but in order to, to name the things that are, that are on my heart, to be able to say in some format that like, this sucks. The situation that I just talked to somebody about um, that has led them to this place in their life, this sucks. And where, where is the divine in this? Um, to like question that, to say aloud, like what, what is it that I, what are the questions that I need to have answered? Um, or what are the questions I want to have answered, right? The, the way the divine works, none of us really know. We may never have answers, but um, <clears throat> I think so often we think of self-care as something that has to, uh, like good vibes only kind of self-care. Um, and I fully believe that it's, uh, it's deeper. It is maybe not deeper, but like more robust than that. Um, it is, uh, we need a, a way to say the things um, that are hard. Um, and then I also, like many people, um, am a big believer in getting outdoors, getting off of a screen, like disconnecting, uh, reconnecting with your body in such a way that you really get to listen to what's going on. Um, I have the joy of living in Girdwood. And so on uh, during the winter, that could mean during my lunch break, I go on a, a quick ski that, you know, that could mean I, um, I just go for a walk. I, you know, like the ability to like remove yourself from a space and to give yourself the chance to just really check in and ask yourself what's going on or to feel where that tension is sitting, um, is super important to being able to listen to ourselves. I love your answer. Cause I think often, and, and we've had other guests too, who's sort of make almost apologies for what their rhythms are. Like, this is my self-care thing, but it doesn't sound like self-care. It doesn't sound like spirituality or it doesn't yeah. sound like mindfulness. And, um, I think about Parker Palmer talking about contemplation as anything that breaks through the illusion and gets in touch with the real. And I yeah. love that that's permission to do what you need to do that, that centers you and gets you back in touch with your body and your spirit and your soul and, and re and re-energizes you. So I love that breakfast is part of your ritual and lamentations is part of your ritual and just getting outside. Um, cause I think yeah. it can look so many different ways and we want to, we often want to box it and it doesn't need to be that way. Yeah. We often want to box it. And we also like, uh, I was listening to something recently about how the language of self-care has, has been, um, I mean, it's like, anything with language. It changes from its original origins. And just in the past like decade, I've heard it preached is the only way I know how to describe it in like social work fields and uh, ministry fields. And like all pastors I know talk about self-care as if it's like the second part of every conversation. Um, and I don't think they're wrong, but I also think that it's the first part, right? It's the thing that like helps us be able to 
traverse this world. It's the thing that helps us to be able to say that like, there are tons of hard, awful things happening in this world. Um, and I can help here and there, but first of all, I have to help here. I have to be within my body. I have to try to find safety in this space, this place that I'm going to be until my dying day. And I, you know, I think the narrative for whatever reason, I can go down a long diatribe about (laughs) late stage capitalism, but (laughs) that's not helpful. Um, But I, you know, like we've forgotten how essential this like being here right now in our body is. Um, And it's a thing we have to relearn. Yeah, so often I hear self-care and those type of practices described as like what you do in response to like what you, you know, the experiences you've had either through your work or through your life. When I think you're right, it's more the preparation for um, instead of the response to. So I love, I I love thinking about it that way that we go into it um, already centered, not finding a way to, to get back to that maybe afterwards. So it's an interesting way to think about it. Laura, thank you so much for taking time to share with us about yourself and about choosing our choosing yeah choosing our roots. Can't get it out there. Um, this has been really fun. Yeah, thank you so much, Joel, for the opportunity. It has been great to talk about things that I love. Still can't seem to find the answers And though the questions are never new But loving you just once was worth it Even if I, I can't help Often at the end of a class or a workshop that I'm teaching, I ask folks to share one word that describes their experience that day. When it comes to my conversation with Laura Rains, the word is wholeness. Whether that's personal wholeness, like the self-care we were talking about at the end, or it's the wholeness of the ecosystem we're living in, it's important to consider how all the areas of our lives affect all the other areas and the people that we're connected to. It's easy to compartmentalize and separate the ways that we live. I once had a friend share with me that the diabolical mind separates, but I believe that we're called to integrate by bringing things together. Just like homelessness is an interconnected hydra, so are the issues we all face daily. We need to consider often how the decisions we make in one area affect the whole. My thanks to Laura Rains for talking with me. I really enjoyed our conversation. Until next time, I'm Joel Kiekenfeld. Be good out there. Thank you so much for listening. If you're informed, inspired, encouraged, or just plain enjoy this podcast, will you do me a favor? You will be rewarded. Go to whatever podcast app you use and rate, review, and subscribe to this podcast. 
Those ratings, reviews, and subscriptions help more people find and listen to us. I also encourage you to like and follow the Anchorage Urban Training Collaborative, the organization behind the Anchored City Podcast, on Facebook and Instagram. On Facebook, we're at Anchorage UTC, and on Instagram, we're at Anchorage UTC. So what's the reward? Aside from the warm feeling of knowing you're helping to spread the word about this great podcast, if you rate, review, or subscribe to this podcast, and we hope you do all three, or you share a post about the Anchored City podcast on Facebook or Instagram with the hashtag Anchored City, send proof like a screenshot to anchorageutc at gmail.com along with your snail mail address and we'll send a little swag out to you. So once again, rate, review, and subscribe for the Anchored City podcast on whatever app you use to listen to this podcast or share a post about the podcast on Facebook or Instagram with the hashtag Anchored City, take a screenshot, send it to our email address, which is anchorageutc at gmail.com, along with your snail mail address, and we'll get you some free swag for helping us get the word out about this podcast. The Anchored City podcast is grateful for a grant from Resonate Global Mission and a partnership with Street Psalms, both of which contribute to making this podcast possible. And we're grateful for you, our listeners. If you are grateful for what you are hearing, please rate, review, and subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen and recommend us to your friends. You can support this podcast by selecting the Anchorage Urban Training Collaborative at smile.amazon.com when you shop at Amazon so that when you make a purchase, Amazon donates to us. Resources used to make this episode can be found in the show details. The Anchored City Podcast is a production of the Anchorage Urban Training Collaborative. The mission of the collaborative is to train the heads, hands, and hearts of urban leaders to love their city and seek its peace. When we say peace, we mean the desire to see a world where all things are the way they're supposed to be for all people. Find us online at anchorageutc.org or on social media at Anchorage UTC. Our theme music is by Anchorage's own Monica Lentner. Monica Lentner